Thank you so much, Bree, for that welcome and that greeting. I love, uh, I love Grace Life as a place where, where we can be honest and walk in the light. And I'll be honest with you, I'm the pastor of this church, and something that has not happened in eight years happened to me last week, and it was so embarrassing. I forgot all about the prayer meeting. I forgot the prayer meeting. I'm the pastor, and I forgot the prayer meeting. And it, and it hit me about the time the prayer meeting was probably ended, and I went into cover-up mode. Have you ever done that? Not a deceptive kind of thing, but I started texting people because I felt terrible. And, and, then, and then the thought struck me is, uh, why do you care so much what the people that are at that prayer meeting are thinking about you as their pastor right now? Why, why is that, why is that a, just shaping your identity and your, and your meaning right now so much? And it was just a moment I had, and I told Sarah, I said, you know what? I, and I even got angry. I was getting angry at my, my kids. I felt my temperature. Is that, do you guys have like a barometer that tells you when things are a little bit off? My temperature started rising, and I got snappy and very sensitive and would even... Uh, uh, flash out at somebody, and I said, you know what, I need to go in my room for a little while, I laid in my bed, and I prayed, and I told Sarah, I'm going to walk around the neighborhood, she said, outside, and I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'm going to walk around the neighborhood and pray, and uh, God met me there in my little stroll around the neighborhood, and it was as if he said, this is not about you, Grace Life's not, <laughs> not about you, it's about me, and I was honored tonight, and I was sought by, by the people of Grace Life, you're the under-shepherd, I'm the chief shepherd, um, and people are always gracious at Grace Life. Nobody said, where were you at? I'm not going to go if the pastor's not going to go. Thank God nobody had that attitude, right? <laughs> if, I, <laughs> if I have not had the privilege of, of meeting you and you're a guest here, my name's Tommy Clayton, lead pastor here at Grace Life, and I'm so thankful to be here. It is a, a wonderful thing to, to shepherd this people, and this is one of my favorite times of the year, it's, it's Advent season. The word Advent, if you don't know, it means the arrival of a noteworthy or significant person. And it's, that word kind of permeates our culture, but people have lost the meaning. If you fell, off a, fell out of a tree and broke your arm, you would probably go to where? Advent walk-in clinic, right? Or an Advent hospital. Um, Christians started orphanages. Christians started hospitals. Christians started charities. Higher education facilities began as seminaries for clergymen. We've kind of forgotten our Christian roots but this is Advent season, and here's another confession. This is going to be a weird sermon. Just, I'm giving you, I'm serving you notice. Um, this is our eighth year, and Advent season, give or take, it's four, four Sundays, right? Uh, I, I came from Southern Baptist roots. Uh, liturgy never occupied a tremendously shaping and powerful place in me as a pastor or as a Christian, for better or for worse. And that's always been a struggle for me when we come to a calendar and seasonal time of the year when there's liberty in the Bible. There's not a preaching calendar in the Bible that says, all right, preachers, listen up. Now you've got to do Pentecost sermon, four advents, Good Friday, Ash Wednesday. There's no, there's liberty, and I'm thankful for that. But I often feel the pressure for that because people were made in God's image, and, and we like predictability and seasons and cycles, and there's good in those things. There's there's, God's grace comes to us through those reminders, and Advent is one of my favorite times of the year, but it's a struggle too, because we're in year eight, so that means potentially 32 Sundays that I feel the pressure as a pastor to preach on a Christmas theme, and look, it's just me and you and the Lord today, okay? You can only do so many things as a pastor, and so, I'm just being really raw, unvarnished, unedited today. Sometimes that's a struggle, and so I hit my study, and I'm praying, Lord, show me, show me what direction you want to take. We're going to take a break from Romans, 
okay, and I want to do something Advent-related. And man, it just wasn't sticking. It's the first week of Advent, and the theme is hope. Hey, hope, and I'm digging around, and I'm praying, and it's just nothing. I get nothing. I'm not looking for an audible word from the Lord or anything like that. Just clarity, you know, and direction, the way it usually happens. And I wasn't getting anything. And I said, man, prophecy has just been on my mind and my heart. You know, we did, we did a series last year, two-week series, uh, about why you can trust your Bible, the Bible that you have in your hands. We use the ESV. It's a good translation from Greek to English. Why you can trust that thing. There's plenty of books that are, that are deemed sacred by people. Why is this one different? And so I, we hit the pause button. What we were doing, we did a two-week series, uh, and I dealt with external evidence, external evidence outside of the Bible that corroborates and validates the authority and the trustworthiness and the reliability of the Bible. And I think our outline was something like, okay, all the lies that have been transformed, people who weren't looking for God but were found by God, that grew up in an agnostic home, they didn't grow up in the Bible Belt, in Georgia, they didn't grow up going to church and hearing the Bible all the time. In fact, they grew up uh, doing what the book of Judges says. Whatever felt right, they did it, you know. Uh, whatever was right in their eyes, they did. And God found them. And we looked at all those people that, you know, didn't grow up in America. They grew up in a third world country, never heard of Jesus. A missionary came and bam, their eyes were opened. We also looked at archaeology and we looked at history and we looked at... Uh, there was something else we looked at, world impact. You know, it's, you're never going to see a soup kitchen started probably by an atheistic organization, right? Christianity is, is underneath a lot of the, the good, benevolent, and, you know, common grace things we see in the world. But what we never got to was internal evidence. And I just kind of put a bug in my own ear. I want to come back, circle back around and do that, and I haven't done it. And I felt guilty. Like I told you I was going to do that, and I haven't. And this is one of the most amazing themes in the Bible to start with is prophecy. So I'm giving you kind of a roadmap for why in the world did they just read Isaiah on Christmas and it's not one of the prophecies about Christmas. Um, so that's what I want to do today. I want to pray and we want to jump right in. So pray with me and my time doesn't start until after the prayer, okay? So let's pray and we'll jump in. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you that we have freedom in this country to gather and to even to not hide, to not, to not pretend, uh, but to say we're here as a Christian church. We're here to honor Jesus Christ. We believe that the Bible is his word to us. It's clear. It has authority. It's effective. It's sharp. It's alive. It searches us. We think we read it, but it reads us. It discloses to us the secrets of our heart. It, it, it shapes our lives. We can build our lives on it. It's trustworthy. It's proven itself dependable over and over and over again. It's, it's the anvil that's worn out many hammers. Thank you that we can be here and we can do this without the, the threat, at least for now. I don't feel the threat of any government authorities busting in here and shutting this down, and uh, we're grateful for that. I take that for granted all the time. I'm thankful for friends in ministry that are preaching at other churches. I thank you for Pastor Darren at Emmanuel Presbyterian Church, Lord, that we have partnered with and they're opening their campus to, up, uh, to us on Sunday night to, to, for Matt Carr to, to launch a student ministry there. Thank you for their partnership and their kindness. Thank you that he loves you, uh, even though he's not even the same denomination that we are, Lord. He loves you, and he preaches the gospel, and he's shepherding his people and many other pastors and churches that that's true of in this area. Lord, we, this is not a turf war. We're all on the same team if we're preaching the message about Jesus coming to rescue sinners. And I pray we would be more united, Lord, and partner um, and focus on the things that unite us. 
And uh, today, may you be exalted, may you be honored, Lord, and help me to preach this. This feels, so, so much of this could feel, could feel scattered. I pray you'd connect it in a way as we pray that it would be uplifting and edifying. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, how many of you remember exactly where you were on September the 11th, 2001? Some of you weren't alive, but for those of you, yeah, exactly. That was a history-shaping, world-shaping event that happened, and I remember where I was. I was in my little S10 truck, and I was driving on the highway, and my brand-new little prepaid cell phone started ringing off the hook, and the radio started going crazy, and I, before long, I found myself in front of a TV like many of you, feeling angry, feeling shocked, feeling like it was an out-of-body experience almost. Um, my adrenaline was pumping. Situations like 9-11 have that kind of impact on us, don't they? They're polarizing events. They shake us up, and they, they sometimes send us scrambling for answers. And they give us an occasion, an opportunity to, to maybe reevaluate our life or rethink our life at a deeper level. That's what happened, especially in Manhattan and New York. Some of the churches that were there could attest their, their attendance doubled and in some cases tripled after, after 9-11 tragedies often forced people to do that. And one of the byproducts of September 11th attacks was that people began to get interested in spiritual things and especially, especially this new interest and curiosity and prophecy surfaced because people began to think, this caught us off guard. Nobody was expecting this. What else is coming, you know? What else is coming down the pike? And you may remember that a few days after 9-11, a few days after 9-11, there was a newly uh, a new interest in this 16th century French seer. He didn't call himself a prophet, but he became known as a prophet, called Nostradamus. He became popular. And for a brief time after the September 11th attacks, his name became the most popular search engine request on Google and every other, there were many more than Google at that time. It was at the top. And here's why. An email began to circulate that claimed that Nostradamus had predicted the attacks in New York City hundreds of years in advance and exactly the detail that would happen. Maybe you received that email. You want me to read it to you? Here's what it said. In the city of God, there will be a great thunder, two brothers torn apart by chaos. While the fortress endures, the great leader will succumb. The third big war will begin when the big city is burning. On the 11th day of the ninth month, two metal birds will crash into two tall statues in the new city, and the world will end soon after. Now, you can imagine why that that email went absolutely viral, because everyone who read it were blown away, and they sent it, forwarded it, some of it in all caps, <clears throat> to everybody in their address book and contact list. And overnight, Nostradamus became this prophetic household name. But there was only one problem. One problem with that. Prophecy wasn't real. It was a complete, absolute hoax. Not real at all. In fact, Nostradamus, oh, I forgot to tell you uh, in that email, it quoted him, Nostradamus, 1654. He wasn't even alive in 1654. He had been dead for 100 years. He died in the 1500s. Um, and by the way, he never claimed to be a global seer or prophet. Uh, in the foreword to his book that he wrote there on the right, to King Edward, he said, uh, these only concern Europe, Asia, and Africa. <laughs> and 9-11 happened in America, North America. So 
He never wrote those words. Those wrote, words were penned by a college student named Neil Marshall. He was a college student at the time, and he was attending Brock University, and he wrote a paper, ironically enough, debunking the prophecies of Nostradamus. He claimed Nostradamus wasn't really a prophet because his writings were so obscure that they can be interpreted to mean almost anything. Does that sound familiar? Generic, vague, obscure. It's like a sock. It fits anyone. Okay? Some of these prophecies. If you've ever read any of Nostradamus' writings, you'll, you'll agree with that wholeheartedly. They read kind of like a fortune cookie. Um, very vague. They say things like, next Wednesday, something very interesting is going to happen to you. What do you think? What are the odds? What are the chances, huh? Well, Neil Marshall wrote a paper taking a very critical and analytical look at Nostradamus' prophecies, and he published his paper on the Internet in 1997, and people found that paper. They didn't read it. They merely copied that quote directly from his Internet paper. They pasted it into an email, and they forwarded it, and the next thing you know, ta-da, Nostradamus is this, like, amazing prophet that was proclaiming things that would happen hundreds of years in advance, even though he didn't live in the time and a place, and he was in another culture, spoke a different language, lived in another country. Sound familiar? And people went absolutely bonkers over this guy's writings, and they couldn't get him fast enough. In fact, back in 2014, do you know there were 36 Nostradamus apps on the iPhone? 36. You don't know whether to laugh or to cry and feel sorry for the people that are seeking that are seeking help and seeking counsel. Years ago, the History Channel aired a series called The Nostradamus Effect that covered his life and prophecies. And now people are even claiming that Nostradamus predicted the queen's death, which he did not. He did not put any dates or numbers at all on any of the writings that he, that he wrote down. That's interesting to me, man, because people won't consult the Bible for answers. When the Bible has prophecies galore. In fact, Sarah and I went downtown to land on Friday night. And something we've never seen before there. I'm sure, I know they exist. But, you know, this is out open in the public. And it's kind of a market. And there was a psychic medium booth. And a lady was there. And somebody was sitting down. And she had their hand. And you can tell, man, they were really intently in a conversation. Here's a lady who knew absolutely nothing about this stranger. And yet that stranger sought her out, paid her money, sat down, and said, please give me guidance. Please Help me know what's coming. Uh, please give me some hope. So the title today of this message is called Christmas Prophecy and Hope. You know, the Bible is a book of prophecy. Some scholars say up to one-third of the Bible is prophetic. Uh, others say at least one-fourth of it. And when I say prophecy, it's, it's good. Thank you, Bree, for clarifying. When, you, when I say prophecy, you may, two things may come to mind. One may be, uh, be forth-telling. Like I'm declaring, I'm speaking something that's true, that's, that's prophecy. And the other is uh, foretelling, and that is predicting the future before it happens in vivid and accurate, undeniable detail. That's what I'm talking about when I say prophecy. Um, well, there were about 350 prophecies that relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you guys know that? Let, let that, it's, it's good we hear so much of, uh, you know, Bible talk sometimes, it's good to be reminded. Before Jesus Christ came, ranging from 400 years before up to 2,000 years before the person of Jesus Christ was ever born, there were around 330 to 350 prophecies that were very minutiae in the detail. Some to the very day and place, events would happen. 
names, places, miracles, uh, happenings, all kinds of things that relate to his, his birth, his death, his life, his suffering, his resurrection, his ascension, all of those things. And yet still people will flock to a vague, ambiguous, fortune cookie-like prophet named Nostradamus who's kind of bunk in some of the things he's predicted anyway. That's interesting. But God went on record, and he had the Old Testament prophets write down in the Bible for all the world to see and critique a multitude of predictions about the life and times and the work of Jesus Christ. He predicted it in careful detail, numerous prophecies. And so the reason we read uh, that scripture earlier was, was because I believe that's the goal of prophecy. By the way, sermon outline today, two points, long introduction, short sermon, two points. Christmas was not a surprise. Or at least it shouldn't have been. Christmas was not a surprise, but Christmas was and is a shock. And it should be a shock to us. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. But I want us to look again at, at that text that, that we read. Now think prophecy. What's the point of prophecy? Isaiah was a book that was written to confront the idolatries of God's people. They had gone into Babylonian captivity. And man, did they pick them some idols that gave them hope and gave them meaning and galvanized them for suffering and just got them out of bed in the morning. These people had embraced all kinds of idolatries, and God is confronting them. He's exposing their idols. He's showing them that these idols are taxing you. They're wearing you. They're wearing you out, and they're not helping you. They're not gods. They're pieces of wood and stone and metal. They can't hear you. They're deaf. They can't speak. They're dumb. Uh, They can't help you. They're impotent. And over and over in Isaiah in the 40s, region, God is confronting these, and he says this in chapter 46, because he's going to ask 40, he's going to ask 14 questions, but it all boils down to to one. You'll know this if you've studied Isaiah. He says, who then will you liken me? Who will you compare me to? He goes, get out all of your gods and goddesses that they haven't toppled over, bring them out here in the open, and why don't you tell me which of them is like me? And then he says this, I am God. Man, I love that. I am God, and there is no other. He's saying I'm utterly unique and separate from all these other entities. I am God, and there is none like me. And then check this out. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. He's saying, you know what distinguishes me? God says, look, I'm going to go on record. I'm going to show you. I'm going to prove to you how I'm utterly unique and different from all these other false things you're embracing. It's because I can tell you the end from the beginning. I can tell you the end from the beginning in astonishing accuracy and detail because not only do I create the end from the beginning, I control it. I'm writing history. He says this in another place in chapter 48. I love this. Can you guys see that? Man, I can hardly see it. He says, the former things I declared of old. They went out from my mouth, and I announced them. Then suddenly, I did them, and they came to pass. He's talking about prophecy. Because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass. That means he's saying you're stubborn, you're cynical. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them you have heard now see of this 
and you will not declare it. He's saying, even though you've seen these things, you're not going to believe it. You're not going to share this truth with other people. So Isaiah is like a showdown at the OK Corral. It's like God's serving notice. He's saying, I'm God, and here's how I can prove to you that I'm God because you're so stubborn and you're so filled with doubt. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to continue the series, and we're going to do a little bit of Christmas prophecy this morning, and probably it'll carry over into next, next week. And I want to tell you what my goal is. I, I actually have actually have three goals, and here they are. Number one, I want to build your confidence that the book you hold in your hands, if it's the Bible, the Christian Bible, right, that it's trustworthy, it's reliable, it has authority. You know, we have trust issues. You know that? We have trust issues. We, we it, it's, one person called authority this, authority. You can't live with it, you can't live without it. It's like everybody in this room has an authority. It's, it's, it's sad to say most of the time the authority is ourselves, our own fickle, fallen, unreliable heart. If it feels good, do it. The heart wants what it wants, right? Follow your heart, follow your conscience. Oh, goodness, you're going to end up in a ditch if you do that. So we have trust issues, uh, but we can't live without authority, and God knows that. I love the fact that God stoops to us and he accommodates us. He knows that we're stubborn. He knows that we're filled with doubt. We breathe the same cultural air that everyone else is breathing, and we see the same CBS documentaries calling into to dispute and doubt the historicity of the Bible, and sometimes that, that starts to eke its way down into our, our heart, and we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it at Christmas parties, right? But we appreciate sometimes a reminder like, hey, the Bible is God's word. You can trust it. It's corroborated. It's reliable. It has authority. It's, it's, it's the anvil that's busted all the hammers that have attacked it and mocked it and, and, and scoffed at it, right? It's good to be reminded. So that's, that's one of the aims I have today and next week is to boost your confidence, to cultivate more trust and confidence in the Bible. Here's a second, here's a second go. I want to provide you with a reasonable defense so that you can engage in conversations with outsiders. And look, it's, the Christmas season is upon us, and I don't have to tell you this, you're going to be hanging out with people that you don't normally hang out with at parties and gatherings and get-togethers. And there's something about Christmas, man, we're outside in our neighborhood talking to neighbors we haven't even met yet in, in phase two of our neighborhood. There's something about the holidays that, that does that. And eventually it comes up in the conversation, your worldview, right? What's the world supposed to be like? What happened to it? And what's going to fix it? And I want to boost your confidence in the Bible, and I want to remind you, hey, uh, God, God reminds us as his people to always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you. We, that's been one of our big prayers for 2022 is gospel conversations. Lord, help us to be witnesses. Help us to live on mission for you. So even if you don't talk about prophecy at your holiday gatherings, at least maybe this sermon will boost your confidence that if something spiritual and faith-related comes up, Man, you're not on, it's not like you're on your heels going backwards. You've, you should have confidence, man. You have the truth. It doesn't make you arrogant. It should make you humble and grateful because plenty of people are blind. You're not any better than they are. God and his grace and sovereign mercy opened your eyes, right? And we pray he does that for others. And the third thing is to, I've already said, address your secret doubts, your honest doubts, not scoffing, but to just put a rock in your shoe. To tell us why do Christians believe the Bible is true? Plenty of people believe it's corrupt. It's filled with contradictions and cannot and should not be trusted. So what distinguishes the Christian scriptures from all the other, from all the other sacred books? And one of the answers to that is it's prophecy. So we're going to look at some Christmas prophecies 
this week and next. And uh, we're going to start in Matthew. Just in a matter of 25 verses in the Gospel of Matthew, there are so many different prophecies. And you're going to find this phrase over and over in them. Uh, you can see there, I've, I've listed just five for today, where it says something to the effect is, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by his prophet. So here's Jesus, here's his birth, and, and Matthew is very careful in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to chronicle every single thing that was happening at the birth of Christ. And he always points back and he's saying, you shouldn't be surprised. You shouldn't be surprised. You shouldn't be surprised. It's all happening exactly as the prophet said it would. <clears throat> and what I appreciate about this is it's just not one prophet. He's like, yep, Isaiah, nailed it again. Isaiah, high five. <clears throat> Isaiah, fist bump, you're on it. You're on your game today. No, there's like a variety of different prophets he lists in just 25 verses. One, of course, is Isaiah. The other one is Hosea. Another one is Micah. Micah, where are you at in here? Micah, you like that prophecy, don't you? Another one is Jeremiah. And then the last one, it just kind of encompasses in a generic statement all the prophets that said he would be uh, a Nazarene. He would be born in Nazareth. That seems to be the consensus of the prophets that Jesus would be somebody born on the wrong side of the track, so to speak, right? He wouldn't be, people wouldn't trust him. They would think, you can't trust him. He's a shady character. He came from the wrong place. That was kind of the generic consensus of people that rejected him. So I appreciate the variety. It's not just one or two prophets. It's all the prophets collectively. And, and listen, th these are just five little snapshots that are taken with Matthew. So we're just going to look at these just for a few minutes. And today, of course, is the first Sunday of the month, and we have communion at the end of the service, so I'm not going to take too long, and uh, remind me if I forget at the end of the service when we are preparing to, to serve communion, that's your time. If you have any children who have believed the gospel, uh, you can go and get them, and they can celebrate communion with you. So if you want to turn over to Matthew, we're going to look for just a few minutes today. Look in chapter 1 first, Matthew chapter 1. Or you can uh, scroll to it in whatever device you have. And I'm going to start reading in verse 18. And I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. And then we'll kind of just jump in this in little sections, okay? Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, here it is. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here's a quote in verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So what's Matthew saying? He's saying, look, all these weird things that happen. And by the way, if you're going to read the Christmas story, Matthew's version is the messy version, all right? If you want the, the nice neat, hallmark, tidy version, there's Luke. And I'm not, I'm, not saying script, I'm not pitting Scripture against itself. The fact that 
that these are taking various angles, to me, corroborates again why the Bible's authentic. We would have edited it and said, man, these don't, th- th- this, is, this seems like a stretch. Why you have two different people talking about the birth of Jesus from two different angles? Because that's what you have in history, right? If we were writing about something that, if we were both, you and your seat and me, writing about this service uh, and writing accurately and honestly, we would still have totally different angles. And that's what Matthew, Matthew shows the pain and the messiness and the craziness and the violence and the slaughter of Jesus coming to earth. And included in that is this huge cloud of suspicion and scandal hanging over Mary and Joseph. So what do you think people would think in that day? When, jo- when Mary's got this big baby bump and her and Joseph aren't officially consummated in their marriage yet. And they're like, hey, Joseph, Mary, what's going on? And they're like, Holy Spirit. And people are like, oh, yeah, Holy Spirit. Haven't heard that one before. I'll keep that in mind, right? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? But it shouldn't have been a surprise, and that's what Matthew's saying. He's saying, look, all these things happen according to what was written in the Old Testament. And he's talking about the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7, when Isaiah was giving a sign that something would happen for Hezekiah the king, and he says, behold, the handmaiden or the virgin shall give birth, which was a miracle, right? And I know that there are people who come around and said, look, Isaiah 7 and the Greek word there, it can mean other things besides virgin. No, it actually, it actually can't. Even unbelieving Hebrew scholars have said, look, that word means unmarried virgin, somebody who has not been sexually intimate with another man. That's what it means. That's what it's always meant, and you can do whatever kind of, you know, biblical gymnastics you want to. At the end of the day, that's still what it's going to mean, and that's why it's such a powerful prophecy because what are the odds of that happening? (laughs) Here's a man and a woman who have not been sexually intimate, and she's got a baby bump, and the prophecy was already made that his name shall be called Emmanuel, and Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's just, that's just one small prophecy. Here's another one. Let's keep reading. Let's go into chapter 2 here, and I'll start in, in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Yeah, when they knew. When Herod's troubled, you better be troubled too because people are going to start to die. And that's the case. Herod was just a wicked, uh, he was just a wicked tyrant of a king. Verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, quote, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Verse 6, check this out. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And this was taken from the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. So this is another interesting uh, prophetic word that's thrown into the mix, that a ruler who would also be a shepherd. Now, that, that's worth a whole sermon. How many rulers do you know that were shepherds? And another word for that would be a servant. Jesus is the ruler who came to serve, and he's the servant who came to rule. That's tied up in that prophecy too, which makes it even more, more potent. But that was written hundreds of years before it happened, his birthplace. 
And Matthew's pointing that out. Look, it's all according to plan. This is not haphazard at all. And by the way, there's some people that say, you know, when Jesus came, he had like a little hidden prophetic book he carried around. And he's like, hey, where's that donkey I'm supposed to ride? Because we got to keep the prophetic thing going, you know. We got to keep up the pretense. And, uh, but listen, this is, this is something he had no control over as a human, okay? I speak as a man. Is how many of you chose where you would be born? <laughs> how many of you chose who your parents would be? And you didn't choose any of those things. So these were prophecies that were even more potent because Jesus had no control over them as a human, all right? Talks about where he would be born. He would be born to uh, a virgin mother, and, and Joseph would have been a, a virgin too at that point. That's not really included in the prophecy. It's just relating to Mary. So that's number two. Number three, let's keep reading chapter two. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to go worship the king. Verse 9, After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Here we go. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now that's Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. And it's also Hosea chapter 2 verse 15. And that's created a conundrum for people because they're like, wait a minute. Is is the Messiah going to be born in Egypt or is he going to be born in Bethlehem? Because prophecies relate both of those to his birth time. And you see how Matthew gives clarity to that. He was born in Bethlehem, but he had to flee to Egypt for his life. And then it says, out of Egypt I've called you, my son. So you see that interesting, man? The detail, the accuracy, the, the great care that was given to these prophecies when they were given and how they were fulfilled. So that's, that's number three. Let's keep reading. We'll get down to verse 16 and 18 here. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or older, or under, excuse me, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what the prophet, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Verse 18, here's Jeremiah's prophecy. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. That was taken from Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 15. And the original context of that prophecy would have been dealing with mothers in Israel when the Babylonians came and invaded them and deported some of them and slaughtered some of their children. And that was near a place where Rachel had died and was buried. And these mothers were personified as Rachel, the mother of the patriarchs, weeping for their children were no more. So isn't that interesting, man? That's four prophecies, bam, bam, bam. But Matthew is serving us notice. He's saying, look, this is not just some surprise that happened. 
not just something serendipitous. This will plan very carefully, very strategically, down to the letter with detailed prophetic accuracy. And, and what those people were witnessing in their day was Jesus' rescue plan breaking through time and space. Amen? That's the beauty and that's the power of those prophecies. And then here's the last one, the last part of chapter 2. Verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. That's amazing, friends. Every, so you've got three different locations connected to his birth that may be confusing until he was born and you see it played out. There would have been Bethlehem where he was born, Egypt where he took refuge and then was called back, and then Galilee and Nazareth where he was actually brought up and called a Nazarene. You see all those prophecies when they're followed in time, uh, or Matthew gives clarity to them, exactly as God planned it to be. That's exactly how it happened. No other religious leader had prophecies like that. Have you ever read about the prophecies concerning Muhammad? No, there aren't any for his birth. Or about Joseph Smith or David Koresh or anybody else. No, this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And listen, those are just a, that's just a small smattering of the prophecies. Imagine this. 300 prophecies. Here, let's do this. Here's, here's an exercise real quick that we'll do. Let's just take eight prophecies that are connected with Jesus, not all of them his birth, not all of them Christmas. Let's just, just eight prophecies. Can you guys see these? Goodness, I've made this too small. I'm having to start wearing glasses now. Your pastor is when I'm reading. So check these eight prophecies out. The Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. We looked at that. The Messiah was to be preceded by a messenger, John the Baptist. The Messiah was to enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. That's a triumphal entry. The Messiah was to be betrayed by a friend who ate with him. The Messiah was to be sold for 30 pieces of silver. That money was to be thrown into God's house and used for a potter's field where, where foreigners were buried. The Messiah was to stand silent before his accusers. And the Messiah was to be executed by crucifixion. Now check this out. Those are eight prophecies all fulfilled to the letter. Now I want to ask you a question. What do you think, that if you want to use words like chances and odds, what would the odds be of something written hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before it actually happened, being fulfilled to the letter, what are the odds of that happening just randomly by chance? Well, you don't have to wonder because I'm going to help you. Check this out. Many of you have read Josh McDowell, More Than a Carpenter, right? And he does a really helpful exercise, and he, he has gotten the help of experts and... Uh, Man, what's it called? Statistics, statisticians, which some people call liars, but in this case, they're not, okay? So here's what they've done. What if you had silver, uh, uh, 50 cent silver dollar pieces, and you had enough of them to fill up the state of Texas, all right? And you did that. You filled up the state of Texas two feet thick with half, uh, half dollar silver Susan B. Anthony coins, 
but you mark one of them with an X, and then you blindfolded a man. And you said, look, go wander around the state of Texas in two feet deep coins. And whenever you're ready, take your time. No pressure, bro, right? Reach down in there and pick one up. The same odds that those eight prophecies will be fulfilled in time by the same person are the same odds that that person wandering around the state of Texas would pick up the coin that was marked with an X. Now, this is what blows my mind. Those are just eight prophecies. Jesus fulfilled over 300. Now, just, just, just sit on that for a minute. Sit on that for a minute. For when all the people are telling you, you know, Christianity is just bunk. It's just crazy. There's no rationale. You've got to check your brains in at the door. No, no intelligent, no thinking person would ever embrace these things. Friend, that's just, that is just absolutely not true at all. And I think Christmas affords us, as God's people, a good reminder because of all the prophecies uh, to be reminded is, is that, you know, you don't like to say we have the truth on our side. It's like, no, we've embraced the truth, thank God, because there's only two options, the truth and a lie. And God has given us the truth. Aren't you grateful for that? By the way, the same, that's the same chance. Ten was 17 zeros. It's called a quadzillion. The man who did that would have the statisticians say one in 100 quadzillion or 10 quadzillion chances of doing that. And yet we have 300 and something prophecies that were, that were fulfilled to the letter. Isn't that amazing? Does that encourage you? Man, it does me. It does me. And listen, those are not the only prophecies. Those are not the only prophecies. Let me read some more, okay? And we're, we're celebrating communion today. So maybe these will hit home and, and, and prepare our hearts for communion. Here's some other prophecies. The Messiah would suffer and be rejected. That was written seven Hundred years before Jesus came by Isaiah in Isaiah 53. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That was written 520 years before it happened by Zechariah. The Messiah would be silent before his accusers. The Messiah would be wounded, whipped, and crucified. Now just wrap your mind around this. The coming Messiah would suffer all these things. King David wrote Psalm 22. And he repeatedly predicted the events of the cross that would happen a thousand years later. If you read that psalm and you read Matthew and especially Luke's account of the crucifixion, it's mind-blowing. Everything that happened. Check this out. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Verse 7. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Listen, even unbelieving Jews will tell you that this was a messianic, they're, they're, these are messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. They, they deny that Jesus was the fulfillment. But especially in Isaiah, man, that really rocks some of the Jews. They have a hard time with some of those chapters, chapter 53 especially. Chapter, uh, uh, Psalm 22, verse 8. He trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. The very same scoffing that happened under the cross was predicted a thousand years earlier by King David. Verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Verse 16, dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. That gives you chill bumps to read that. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. And then check verse 18 out. They divide my garments among them, and they cast lots for my clothing. Do you know when this was written, uh, crucifixion had not even yet been invented as a means of execution and torture. 
and yet they're talking about my hands and feet are nailed and I'm pierced. It's incredible. It says the Messiah would be crucified alongside of criminals, Isaiah 53. It says he would be buried among the rich, which he was. He borrowed a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53, 9. But here's the best news in the world, and this is our last point, and it's going to take about 30 seconds, okay? Christmas was not a surprise. It should not have surprised anybody. But Christmas was a shock, and let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Because God was coming to visit his people. Now think about this. God who is holy, God who is sovereign, God who is majestic, God who, it is said, is of purer eyes than to behold evil, God whose word has been maligned, has been rejected, whose commandments have been broken, God whose people have, have ran away from him like sheep gone astray, God whose uh, people have chosen idols who are deaf and dumb and powerless rather than him, that God is coming to visit his people. And what do you think should happen when he comes to visit? What do you think that God's going to do? You know, you've heard that don't make me come down there, right? Wait till your father gets here. So what do you think the expectation of sinners should have been for a holy, sovereign, powerful, just, majestic, vengeful God to come and visit them? What do you think should have been the expectation? And what should have been the reality? Judgment, slaughter, death, vengeance, recompense, right? Reckoning. But what was it instead? Well, we're told what it was. Luke chapter 2, verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. That's the word gospel in Greek. I bring you gospel. Don't be afraid. Good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's the best news in the world. It's the greatest news producing the greatest joy of all time. That we deserve judgment. We deserve punishment. We deserve wrath. And yet Jesus came and he said, peace on earth. He's the Prince of Peace. He came and he became a substitute, and he stood in our place. And really, that's the conundrum. There's, there's like a lot of enigma that's connected with some of these pro- prophecies because one says that the Messiah is going to become, and he's going to be a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? He's going to roar. He's going to vindicate his people Israel. And that's what was so confusing to people is when Jesus came, they missed the suffering servant, right? And the person in the work of Jesus, all these prophecies come together and are fulfilled. He, he is the lion-like lamb. He is human, but he's divine. He's a king, but he's a humble servant too. Even John the Baptist in in prison was confused. Do you remember? He'd been prophesying, hey, look, there's one coming. There's one coming, and he's going to do some sifting. I'm telling you, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. You wait. He's going to come, and you're going to be baptized by fire. And then Jesus came, and he's healing people. And he's showing compassion, and he's showing mercy. And John's in prison, and he's like, come on, where's the judgment? Remember? He was confused. He misunderstood. So he sent an envoy to Jesus from prison. He sent his disciples. He said, hey, go and ask Jesus, are you the promised one or should we wait for somebody else? You remember what Jesus said? He said, look, you go and you tell John. And he listed the prophecies for the Messiah. Behold, the lame walk, the blind see, the sick are made well, the dead are raised to life, demons are cast out, and blessed is the one who is not offended because of me. And what he was saying is, John, don't be scandalized. Don't be angry. Don't be offended. Take a step back and stand by. All these prophecies are going to be fulfilled in me. You're just going to have to be patient and wait. And thank God we're going to be rescued from the fierceness of that line, right? The Bible says 
when Christ returns, that people will be crying out to the mountains and hills to fall on them and hide them from the face of the one whose presence they cannot flee from, they cannot escape. They're going to be hiding in caves, but look, there's not going to be any place to flee when the line of the tribe of Judah comes back and he won't be as a suffering servant, right? He came the first time and there was no room for him. He's going to come the second time and the whole world can't contain his glory and his wrath. Aren't you grateful that Jesus took your place as the substitute? That's the greatest prophecy fulfillment we could ever, we could ever stand under. Are you thankful for that? I know prophecy may not be the most exciting thing in the world, but it should be. It should be. No other religion in the world has prophecies that are fulfilled to the very letter like we do. And Jesus wants us to talk about that and think about that. We don't have to hide these things. I'm going to do another sermon, not, not next week on prophecy. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to do next week. We may continue some of this, but I'm going to talk about how did we get the Bible? How do we even know that's the, that the transmission of the Bible handed down to us is accurate? How do we know that the 66 books that Protestant evangelicals have in their copy are the right ones and there's no you know, hidden secret gospels that need to be included? We need to talk about that too, and I want to do that as your pastor. I want to help you gain even more confidence in the power and the effectiveness of the Word of God. But for today, let's, let's still and quiet our hearts. I want to invite our servers to, to come down to get ready to serve communion. If you have a, a child or a couple of kids in the back who have professed faith in Jesus Christ and you want them to join you today and celebrate communion, this is your cue to go and get them. And I'm going to pray for us. Lord Jesus, this is a special Sunday for us. In a lot of ways, it's the first Sunday, at least for us, I know I'm a week behind, but it's the first Sunday for Grace Life. We started in December. This is Advent. This is the arrival of a significant and noteworthy person, and it's not a surprise to us, Lord. It's a fulfillment of hundreds, if not thousands of years of predictions of you telling us who was coming, when he was coming, how he was coming, why he was coming, and what our heart response should be. It should be repentance. It should be belief. It should be embracing him and following him and, and turning from our sins and letting our identity be shifted and letting our behavior be transformed, letting our hearts be recalibrated and rethinking our life. And Lord, you do that every year for us when we consider your arrival, your humble arrival into this world. It should have been a bloodbath for sinners, Lord, but it wasn't. It was mercy. It was grace. It was compassion. It was forgiveness. And that offer still stands, Lord. You are still standing as the Savior of the world, and you are inviting people, Lord, compelling people to come. You commanded all men everywhere and all women and children everywhere to repent, to come to you. There's still room under the cross for humble sinners to come and find forgiveness and find grace and find peace, to acknowledge that you're Lord and they're not, to repent and turn from their ways. I pray, Lord, that we would be strengthened in our faith, that, that the Bible is, in fact, the very words of God. And that you have gone out of your way, Lord, to address our doubts and our suspicions, Lord, and our need for just corroboration. And so I pray now as we celebrate communion together that we would be thankful, Lord, of the little baby that you were grew up to become a man who would become a substitute and would offer himself in our place. Thank you for that, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.